This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, welcome everybody to Playlist 2022. I'm so thankful that you're here today as we are reminded that there was a time when microphones had courts. How many of y'all didn't know that? You know, imagine old Erica Roberts around here dancing around with that microphone with a cord. She'd be falling off the stage at some point. That takes a lot of coordination to dance with one of them things. So it's a, today we're, we're, we're looking at um, that song, Don't Stop Believing. How many of y'all got a, uh, a glow stick? They hold a glow stick up. We're going to require you a little bit later to use the glow sticks, okay? We got a little exercise coming up later. This is a series where we actually take uh, what would be considered maybe a more modern song, and we use it to examine a book from the Bible. We're actually going through the Minor Prophets. So I want to just take a moment and just kind of catch everybody up on who the Minor Prophets are. Throughout the story of God, the people of God rebelled against God, and as they did, God would raise up from among them a prophet. And prophets did one thing. They shared the word of the Lord with the people of God. They would hear God speak to them, and through them, God would speak to his people. In the Old Testament, there are major prophets and minor prophets. The major prophets were Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel. A major prophet was not more important, wasn't major as in like there was more emphasis there. They just simply wrote a majority of the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. Now, the minor prophets were used in the same way. God raised them up. They had profound, significant ministries within Israel. They, they spoke the word of the Lord to the people of God. Um, and there's 12 of them in the Old Testament. And we're, we're actually taking one each week. You're familiar with them. The book of Jonah is a minor prophet. God said to Jonah, I'm going to speak through you. I want you to go to Nineveh, which was a city in Assyria. And Jonah's like, I don't want to go there. What are you talking about? Go to Assyria. I hate the Assyrians. The Assyrians had attacked them. They had oppressed them. He didn't want to go there. He says, I know that if I go and pronounce this judgment, you're going to be the kind of God that you've shown yourself to be. You're going to forgive them. And I don't want that to happen to the Syrians. So really it was nationalism, this kind of nationalist pride that kept him from wanting to go to Syria. You know the story. He gets on a boat, running away. God swallows him up with big fish, vomits him up on their shore. He goes and does exactly what God had told him to do. And the people of God responded, or the people of Nineveh responded in a kind way. They begin to repent. And God forgives them. And at the end of that book, you've got this prophet who's really upset all by himself. The book of Jonah is very sad. He's upset because God was not just just, but merciful and loving. That's who God shows himself to be. And so we've looked at this for a few weeks. The first week we looked at the book of Micah and we saw that the book of Micah was written to a very specific time period when there was a lot of stuff going on and we saw that we might not want to dismiss some parts of the Bible because they were historic because we might actually be living in times that are like those. We saw that in a time of economic prosperity, 
In increasing disobedience, Micah invited the people of God to live justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God as the world around them changed. Then the next week, we looked at the book of Obadiah, which is written from the, the people of God to the Edomites, who was kind of like family. But they watched as they were sieged by Babylon and then plum, pl- went and plundered the, the remains of what they had left. And so really, it's a, a story in a book about the powerful and the vulnerable. And Obadiah shows us that God holds supreme power and he will ultimately right the wrong things in this world. So today we're looking at um, this song of Don't Stop Believing, but we're looking at the book of Joel. And the book of Joel is actually really famous for its New Testament appearances. It's quoted by uh, the Apostle Peter in his very first public message in Acts chapter 2. He starts, it's right after the Holy Spirit has come. They're in the upper room and they've spilled out into the crowd speaking in other tongues. And he says, these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. I've told you before, as you process, when is it too early in the day to start drinking? Peter's already answered that. It's nine o'clock in the morning. This is a little too, he's saying, listen, it's too early. You ought to know this. It's way too early to be drinking. And he says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joe, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I just want to note that in the Old Testament and then quoted again here in the New Testament, God has said to his people, it's my desire for you young women and you young men to speak the word of the Lord to the people of God. This is not new. So thankful for the girls in our, our church just a few weeks ago who spent some time speaking life into us. You know, Joel dates after the kingdoms have been conquered. I've walked you through a lot. You've got to understand some history to really date these books. And Joel is kind of hard to date. We, we understand that the people are kind of in, in a season of oppression. The, the is kingdom of Israel has divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The Assyrians swoop in and conquer the northern kingdom. Eventually, the Babylonians defeat them and conquer them. And then finally, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, is conquered. They're all in captivity. The brightest and strongest are taken away. And we know that really contextually that Joel's probably written not too long before they return because the walls of Israel have been rebuilt. The book of Nehemiah depicts how Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king, returned to Israel, returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city before the people of God came back. And this reference is actually a point that you can understand through the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision. And what would happen throughout Daniel is he would have this vision, and Daniel would interpret the dreams. Here's the vision. He sees this thing. He sees this statue. It's, got these, it's made of different metals. And he tells Daniel about it, and Daniel interprets the dream. The head that's gold, that's you, king. 
This is the Babylonian Empire. You will not last for long, but eventually you'll be conquered. The, the chest of silver, this is the Persian Empire that's going to come behind you. And then below that, the, the iron midsection, this represents the coming of the Greek Empire, which we would know through Alexander the Great, followed by the, the lower metals, which is the Roman Empire, and then what's considered to be the later Rome, all right? This is a really profound vision because what Daniel's showing the king of Nebuchadnezzar, he's showing them that, that you're not going to be in charge for what you feel to be so firm and so solid. So it's going to last forever. It's not going to last forever. As a matter of fact, Babylon is conquered before too long by Persia. And as Joel writes, most scholars believe the Persian Empire is now in control. It looks firm. It looks established. It looks rooted. Nothing is going to shake it. Nothing is going to come against it. I don't know if y'all ever look around and feel that way. It has been rare in the modern age for empires to last longer than 300 years. It doesn't take a scholar to figure out to a, how old our country is. And it's as if Daniel was saying, no, listen, it ain't going to last forever. But in the middle of it, you feel like everything's so secure. It's so solid. But Joel is written in a moment that's reminding the people of God that things might not be as secure and solid as you think they are. A series of natural disasters has struck. A swarm of locusts has come through. A swarm of Look at this picture. This picture is from 2016 in Argentina. A swarm of locusts invaded Argentina in 2016 and set the nation upside down, destroyed the economy in just the span of a few weeks. You might think, well, this couldn't happen in our modern age. Just a few years ago, it did. There's a swarm of locusts that's come through. There's a drought. Look at this picture. This is a drainage ditch in a farm in California. This is from a New York Times article earlier this year. California right now is in a 50-year drought. So, so severe that you can look, and we're familiar with this because we have dry seasons here in North Carolina, that the, the ditch that is supposed to be flowing water to irrigate the crops is so dry that it's cracked. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there when things just felt like a, it's just dried up? There used to be joy there. There used to be fun. It used to be life-giving, but it's just all dried up. You know, these natural disasters have served in the book of Joel to remind the people of God that he is bigger than any oppressive or worldly power. It's a season. They're in a difficult season. The locusts have destroyed the crops. The drought is drying up the fields. They're, they're really, in many ways, for an agricultural economy, this is devastating. It's difficult. It's traumatic. 
It's a tough season. You know, life is filled with seasons. I've told you this for the last several years because when the, the pandemic first struck in March of 2020, I knew that it's going to get to a point where it's going to feel like this is how life is going to be forever. But it's not. It's just a season. And the thing about seasons, seasons change. They have a beginning. They have an end. Some are good. Some are challenging. And here's what I know about seasons. We will go through seasons of suffering. We will. There are seasons of life that we're going to feel like we are on top of the mountain. Everything's going our way. It couldn't get any better than it is right now. But we're going to go through some seasons when things are difficult. They're trying. They're hard. Notice I didn't use the word bad. It might be challenging. It might be difficult. But God's still going to do something good with it. Jesus said in John 16, I have told you all of this. I've, I've taught you. I've taught, taught you about faith and seeing the world. I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. For here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Your peace is not in your circumstances. Your peace is in Jesus. You don't overcome because your circumstances change. You overcome because you overcome in Him. Take heart for that reason. We're going to have some seasons of suffering. So I want you to think about this moment for Joel. Why are the people of God suffering? Number one, they are under an oppressive worldly power. The Persians were, as we define today, wickedness. They elevated wickedness. They take things that we would say that is broken, that, is, that, is, that should never be celebrated, and they brought it to the center of their culture, and they celebrated it. It was a broken culture. They're living under the oppression of a very worldly, oppressive power. Number two, a plague of locusts, as I showed earlier, have attacked their land. Joel records that in verse 7 of chapter 1. It has laid waste. This plague has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. It devoured everything. It devoured everything. And then they're living through a severe drought. Verse 10 in chapter 1 records, the fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The olive oil fails. Y'all need to pay attention to what he said there. The new wine is dried up. Because we're going to see something at the end of the book that's pretty powerful. And they're suffering in that moment. It, it asks the question, why do we suffer? Why do we go through seasons of suffering? 
Why do we do that? Why is there times in our life that we, I'm on top of the mountain. I'm, I mean, I feel like I could charge hell with a water pistol right now. And there's times that I'm just, I'm on the bottom of the worst desert that I've ever been in in my life. There's just times, seasons of suffering. Why? I'm going to give you five simple answers. Number one, our own sin. Why do we, we, we suffer because we sin. We're sinners. I don't know about y'all, but I know that there's stuff in my life and in my heart that is not right. Pride, arrogance, insecurity, doubt, distrust. And here's the thing. God loves you so much that he will not leave that unaddressed. God will discipline us in our sin. And I want you to hear this. That's not just in sinful choices. There's a lot of times we'll get in environments like this and all we'll talk about is sin is, you know, the, the girls that, that smoke and, and chew and you don't run with those girls that do any of that. You've heard those kinds of things before. We're not talking about that kind of, I'm talking about just sinful attitudes. God will discipline you for your attitudes. And the Bible says in Hebrews that God will discipline us and that when he does, it's painful for a season. But then it begins to produce righteousness and peace. That's the harvest of God's discipline. Righteousness is right living, being made right with God. But peace is coming into peace with God. Y'all need to hear this. Somebody needs to hear this today. You will never have peace until you have peace with God. Your circumstances can come into agreement with how you think it's supposed to be, but you won't have peace until you're at peace with the heart of God. And the Bible says that that's what God's discipline, even though it's painful, will produce in us. Our sin. Number two, the sin of others. It's true. We live in intimate relationships, whether it be family or a spouse, or kids, or close friends. And the, the truth is that when they sin, we get caught up in the affects of that sin. Some of y'all are there. You've had some people that you love who have made some bad decisions and you're living in the pain of that. It's so easy it's so easy to point the finger in that. Can y'all just press pause every once in a while and stop and think about how your sin has caused others to suffer? How my own pride has brought judgment on my family. How I've made it difficult for my spouse because I'm controlling. How I've made it difficult for my kids because I'm manipulative. Don't just always point the finger. Sometimes take a step back and remember that it's your sin that's affected others. It's caused them to suffer. You'll suffer because of their sin too. And sometimes it's worldly powers and systems. Hate to break it to you, but we don't live in a world where God reigns supreme over all those that work in our civil government. The world as it is, is not how God intended it to be. The things of this world, and every once in a while, I just gotta stand up here and remind you, are not the things of God. 
They're not. Don't get confused about that. Oh, God will use people. Yes. God will redeem things. Yes, but we're not in heaven yet. We're not. And as much as we love our country and love the place that we live in, we should. We have to recognize that there's a far cry difference between the heart of God and where we live. There's an oppression that we live in the middle of that oftentimes we're immune to and don't even diagnose and think about. Number four, you have an enemy. There's not a lot of us in this world that go about our daily life thinking about the fact that there's literally an army of spiritual forces that want to take you out. Every good gift that God destined in his heart to give you, the devil wants to steal it, kill it, and destroy it. You've got an enemy. And sometimes we go through seasons of suffering because there's an oppression that happens in our life when we start moving towards God. Y'all, some of y'all are young in the Lord. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. You get up and start taking some of those first steps towards God, and you start feeling the flow of your family, the flow of your culture, the flow of your workplace flowing against you. And it feels like everything's trying to push you back. You got an enemy that wants to push you back where you start and keep you in your place. You start moving towards God, you're going to face resistance. And sometimes we suffer for that. And sometimes, this is a tough one, number five, we go through seasons because God's judging our culture. I mean, I hate to tell you this, but as a culture, we're not getting everything right. There's stuff that is broken and sinful about the way that we treat other people. And sometimes God judges an entire culture. We don't like that because as Americans, we like to think it's all about me. But there's a lot of we in the Bible. God judging a people. And that's exactly where the people of God are in Joel's time. They're being judged as a culture. They're all going through the drought. They're all suffering the effects of the locust. They're all dealing with it. They're going through a season of suffering. And so I want to do this real quickly. I want to ask the question, what should we do with our suffering? Let's not just talk about it. Let's ask the question because in many ways, Joel answers this question regarding our suffering. He actually shows us what do we do when we find ourselves in a season of suffering. And he starts to answer that question at the end of chapter 1. I want to read out of the message paraphrase beginning halfway in verse 12. Joy is dried up and withered in the hearts of the people. Y'all ever been there? It's such a difficult time. You just feel like, man, in my heart, the joy is just, it's just dried up. It's not even there right now. And also you priests, put on your robes. Enjoy the outcry. You who lead worship, lead them in lament. Now there's a word we don't know. 
spend the night dressed in gunny sacks, you servants of God. Nothing's going on in the place of worship. No offerings, no prayers, nothing. What he's saying is, listen, everyone's lost their crops. They've lost their, their livestock. And right now, because of that, they don't have anything to come into the place of worship and offer. Worship has died. So instead of worshiping, lament. That's the answer to the first thing we need to do in a season of suffering. Give yourself permission to lament in the suffering. Give yourself permission to lament. You've been there before. It feels like joy's gone. It's dried up. My heart is broken. And the question is, what are you feeling? How are you responding? Spiritual maturity is defined by responsiveness, okay? It's defined by how we respond to the heart of God. Let me give you an example. When we sin, we should respond by repenting. Should be the response. I sinned, I broke, I, the law of God, I trespassed against the heart of God. I'm, I'm done. I've blown it. How do I respond to that? My response is repentance. And repentance is not just an apology. It it's literally means to turn. It's a commitment to change my ways. I'm turning from that failure, from that way, from that attitude. I'm going to turn away and I'm going to live a different way. When we sin, we should respond by repenting. When we suffer, we should respond by lamenting. When we suffer, we should respond by lamenting. And this is going to be really tough for a lot of us. There's a large percentage of the book of Psalms that are actually classified as Psalms of lament. You read them and they're the ones you go, I wish I wouldn't have read that today. I feel a little down after, you know, talking about everything's dried up and everything's broken and God, you, you need to see me. You know, you read that, like, I'm just going to say this, like Psalm 102, which is a Psalm of lament. You read that and you, you just got to read the next one after that. You can even get a little pick me up after that one. What is lament? Lament means to process and express grief sorrow or disappointment oh it's so countercultural. it's so counter for us oh we don't like to do that did you know that therapists counselors clinicians would tell you that that's the healthiest thing you can do researchers have found that grief never goes away Working with adults who lost parents when they were kids, if they weren't allowed to grieve and walk through the processes of grief, they have found, they call it now after grief. It's still there and it's still got to be processed. And if it's not processed, it comes out in a lot of other toxic ways. To lament it's to take those things that won't go away and find a way to process them and express them. You know, it's like some of you are going, I need to feel that. No, I've been taught you bury that. You run from it. You deny it. You don't deal with that. In a world that's taught many of us 
to avoid them. God wants you to lean into your feelings, especially during seasons of suffering. He wants you to lean into it because there's stuff in your heart that comes out and it comes out in those moments and it never comes out in other times. Because you start going through a season of suffering and all of a sudden you're telling God, this ain't fair. Why would, I, why would you let this happen to me? How can you love me if you let me go through this? And God goes, who are you? Who are you to talk to me about fair? I gave up my son for your sin. Who are you to talk to me about good? I've watched you since you were a kid. You want to talk about good? Let's talk about what you did there. You know, Job, I didn't say this in the first service, but somebody needs to hear. Job actually did that with God. And God looked at him and said, do you know who makes it snow? Who makes the sun to shine? Who makes it rain? It's not you, it's me. Who are you to tell me? what's fair and right. And that stuff doesn't come out. And you don't see that it's lingering in your heart until you grieve something. And it's through lament that it comes to the top and you finally get a chance to be free from it. Joel calls the people of God to lament. And we, in times of suffering, should lament too. Look at the next verse. Look at what he says to do next. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. He's saying, listen, y'all ain't doing anything when it comes to worship. You need to fast. You need to get together and pray. And you need to start worshiping. This is what he says. Use your suffering as motivation to increase your discipline. Use it. Fast. Pray. Worship. Call on the name of God. Do it even more than you've ever done it before. Because your suffering will become motivation for something. It's going to motivate you some way. And for a lot of us it motivates us to withdraw and y'all get away from me. I don't want to be around. Does your mode, does your suffering motivate you to withdraw from or lean into God? I mean, what Joel's talking about are classically considered spiritual disciplines. Fasting, prayer, worship, Bible study, journaling. What you know what he's saying? He's saying, take those, elevate them, elevate them. Go after God even more. Let it motivate you to, to seek God, to go after Him. When you're suffering, let it motivate your discipline in pursuing Jesus. And as he's wrapping this up halfway through chapter 2, there's only three chapters in the book. Here's what he says. This is what suffering should do. Even now, declares the Lord, return. Return to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning. Some of y'all only think God wants you when you're at your best. God wants your grief. He wants your mourning. He wants your weeping. He wants your tears. 
And sometimes, if we're honest, we withhold some things from God. I don't want to give him that yet. And God says, no, with all your heart. I don't want just a part of your heart. I want all of it. What should we do with our suffering? Number three, in seasons of suffering, return to God. Return to God. Come back to God. Don't run from Him. As a matter of fact, some of us, that's been our response to suffering. And the problem with that is when we run from God, even if we just run in our attitudes, it only increases your suffering. It doesn't make anything better. Some of y'all have made things tremendously worse for yourself because you won't come back to God. You run and you run and God's going, I'm going to get you. You're going to come back one day. I'm not letting you go. Did you notice all your heart? God doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you. I've come to see this, and Joel shows us this so well. Every season of suffering is an opportunity to more fully surrender our lives to God. Because it's in that suffering that that nasty stuff can come out of your heart. I didn't know I thought that. I didn't know I was like that. I, I thought I was over that. Every season of suffering is an opportunity to surrender to God. Now, I want to... I want to think about the, the song that we looked at, Don't Stop Believing" by, by Journey. came out in 1981. As the pop-up video said, I was four years old. Some of y'all remember those days of hair and uh, crop, when dudes wore crop shirts. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> wanting ever to go back to those days. I'd be happy as long as microphones don't have cords and I can't trip over them and that song, though, it, it, it was, this is so interesting. It was written almost entirely by Jonathan Cain. Journey in, in that period of time was one of the leading rock bands in the United States. And that new record that was coming out in 1981 was a big deal. Jonathan Cain was a keyboard player for another lesser-known uh, band. It had been very unsuccessful. And, and really, he was brought over, he was actually hired by the band, came over to be full-time part of the band. And in their, their writing session, he, he brought out something that his dad had continued to tell him. When, when he was suffering as a musician and not making any money and things weren't going well, he said that in, in the worst times he'd call his dad, his dad would say, son, don't stop believing in your dream. Don't give up. Don't give up when it's hard. Don't stop. You know, I, I was thinking about that in the first service, and some of y'all are raising kids that are now young adults. I, I want you to listen to me. Your words of encouragement mean a lot more than you'll ever know. They meant that for him. And I don't know if you paid attention to this. But on the pop-up video, we didn't get to sing that chorus. How many of y'all know when that chorus comes on and you're in the car by yourself, you turn it up, right? You're going to sing along with it. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Get out, your, get out your glow sticks. We're going to turn the lights down. We're going to play the chorus. We're going to sing it out, okay? All right, get those glow sticks up. We're going, woo, come on. Come on, we're going to do it right now. Don't stop believing. Come on now. Hold on. 
this book up he's looking to the people of God and he, I know you're in a dark place I know it's not easy but don't stop believing God is still faithful in a season of suffering to fulfill his promises even in our darkest seasons I want to give you three promises that this book highlights. One of these is one of my favorites in the entire Bible. Number one, God will deal with sin. God will. God will deal with sin in me and in others. God is righteous judge. And some of us spend so much time telling God what he needs to do with somebody else. And the truth is, is that I am an unrighteous judge. But God is righteous judge. And Joel highlights that. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand. The day of the Lord. You read through the minor prophets, you're going to see that phrase over and over and over again. It's the day of God's coming judgment. Where God is going to make right the things that are wrong in the world and the things that are wrong in us. God through the Old Testament shows himself to be very just and very merciful. And we love that when it's us, don't we? God's dealing with our sin, but he's being patient and kind and gracious. And we know, I, I know I'm being tough, God. I know I'm being difficult, but thank you for being patient with me. But we get so frustrated when God is equally patient with other people, don't we? If you're patient to let God deal with your sin, be patient as he deals with others' sin. Because God will deal with sin. That's his promise. The day of the Lord is coming. I don't have to be the judge. God, you're the judge. In chapter 2, there's a vision, a prophetic vision of Joel. And it kind of connects to something that the people would have understood. He sees another swarm of locusts coming, but this time it's a vision. It's not, it's really trying to show them something that they could relate to. In this vision, what he's seeing is an invading foreign land. And then as we read earlier, God then invites them, would you return to me with your own heart, with, with, with all of your hearts, just return to me, come back to me. And he shows them in the Bible, in Joel chapter 2, at the very end of it, what he'll do for them if they return. This is, I, I want to go ahead and tell you, this is one of my favorite promises from God in the entire Bible. I, I, it has at times been the thread that I have clung to. Joel 2, 25. Look at this. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. 
the great locusts, the young locusts, the other locusts, and the locust swarm, the great army. Notice he says that I sent among you. God says, listen, I'm not just gonna repay the crop. I'm not just gonna give you back the money you lost. God says, I'm gonna give you something that you can't give yourself. I'm gonna give you your time back. You're not the owner of your time, but I'm gonna give you back the years that were taken as the locusts came and devoured all that. What you lost in discipline, I'm gonna give you back when you return to me. Some of y'all have lost some years. You've got kids that have wandered away and you've lost years of relationship. Some of you have lost years in your family. I want you to hear the promise of God is not just that he'll forgive, but see this, God will restore us from our suffering. He's not just a God that forgives, he's a God that restores. He's a God that brings us back and makes us better. And I love that he says, listen, I'm gonna restore something to you that you could never do for yourself. You can plant more, you can grow more, but you can't get any time back because that's my resource. I'm gonna give you something that you can't even get for yourself. In a time of suffering, it's so easy to focus on what's lost and what's painful. But listen to this, as God directs our life, there is no pain without purpose. There is never a moment that God would allow you to go through something that's difficult, challenging, and painful that there is no purpose, good purpose in his heart for you. First Peter, Peter's writing to a, a group of young Christians that, that he really was very instrumental in them coming to faith. He's writing them to encourage them. And as he's wrapping up this letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, he says this, The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. <laughs> Listen, he's not just saying the end result of this is forgiveness that's a great part of it. But Peter's saying, listen, you might suffer for a moment, but the heart of God is never gonna leave you to that. The plan of God is always to see you restored, to see you strong, to see you firm and planted and steadfast. Don't lose heart. The God that gave you whatever you lost can restore it. And for some of us, that restoration needs to happen in our hearts. We've lost something on the inside that God needs to restore. And I want you to see this promise. Look at this. God will reward our faithfulness to Him. God will reward our faithfulness to him. This is a part of the reason why Joel is quoted by the apostle Peter in Acts chapter two, when he says in the last days, 
the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. It's a part of the, the promise. Joel 3 really has all these promises to the people of God as they return to Him. One of my favorites is found in verse 18. Talking about the day of the Lord. It says, what a day. This is from the message, Eugene Peters' paraphrase. Wine streaming out of the mountains, milk rivering out of the hills, water flowing everywhere in Judah, a fountain pouring out of God's sanctuary, watering all the parks and the gardens. Now, you remember earlier it said that the new wine had dried up. In the original text, what it says here is that on that day, the new wine begins to pour out again. For a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord isn't about punishment. It's actually a day of reward. You're found faithful. You're the one who stood. You're the one who didn't cave to the culture. You're the one who continued to follow. You were faithful. In our eternal God, this is so important, specializes in eternal rewards. When we talk about rewards, too many times we start talking about the things we get in this life. That's not how God rewards us. It's eternal. You know, suffering can get your eyes off eternity and really on today. God, where are you? It doesn't feel like you're good. It really can do that. Get your eyes off of that. But it really causes us then to ask the question, where are you looking for your ultimate reward? Are you looking for your ultimate reward today? Because that's not the way that the Bible frames our life. We may suffer for a little while, but there's a reward that's eternal waiting in the heart of God. You know, when we suffer the right way, it has a way of focusing our hearts on heaven, reorienting us to the simple fact that this world is not our home, that there's more to this life than this moment. I want you to know today that you might be in a season of suffering. God has a plan for the pain that you're going through. It's a good plan. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.